welcome to Charity Chat. This is your host, Freya Samuelson. Now, I don't know about you, but something I'm very conscious of is my impact on the environment, not just at home, but also at work. I'm in a good routine now of turning off my laptop and screen at the end of the day, and my commute from my bedroom to my desk is very environmentally friendly because it only takes about 30 seconds on foot. But as we're returning to the office and a normal way of life, I really feel it's important to start with some better habits that don't impact the world so harshly. And in today's episode, I talked to Ellen Cunningham, who is the Environmental Sustainability Coordinator at Concern Worldwide. And she has been tasked with looking at how to reduce the charity's environmental impact, both in the head offices and in their program offices across Asia, the Middle East, Africa and the Caribbean. Although this conversation is quite specific to international development, Ellen's provided some easy steps at the end of this episode that you can start incorporating into everyday life to help reduce your environmental impact. Before we get on, I just want to say a huge thank you to Ellen and of course to Work For Good who have brought you this episode today. Work For Good believes everyone should be able to turn the work they do into good. Through their fundraising platform, they offer charities a way to engage and work with small businesses, including founders, owners and sole traders who want to make an impact for charities through their sales. To find out more, please visit workforgood.co.uk. Hi Ellen, thank you so much for joining us on Charity Chat today. Firstly, can you just give everyone a bit of an introduction about yourself, a bit of your background and some of the organisations that you've worked with so far? Sure. So, hi, Freya. It's really nice to be here. Thanks for having me on. It's very exciting. Um, My name is Alan Cunningham and I am the Environmental Sustainability Coordinator at Concern Worldwide. Um, We're an international humanitarian organisation that delivers life-saving interventions to the world's poorest and most vulnerable people. So these kind of range from rapid emergency response uh, to more innovative development programming as well. And we currently operate in around 23 countries globally, but our HQ is based here in Dublin, which is where I'm coming to you from today. Um, And I suppose my my career to date uh, before Concern has definitely been by no means linear. Um, It all started off kind of 10 years ago when I started my undergraduate degree in earth sciences. Um, And yeah, myself and my peers were very passionate environmentalists. And that was definitely uh, not as easy back then as it is now. Um, It's become quite trendy now. um, And everyone's (laughs) part of everyone's vernacular, which is much easier. Um, But I suppose, yeah, back then, I remember being, you know, so appalled that uh, politicians and corporations were kind of denying the, the science regarding how agricultural systems and the fossil fuel industry were impacting um, our earth system. And obviously, you know, that denial and slowness to act has been a major contributing factor as to where we are currently, which is rightly described as a climate crisis. But I suppose, you know, um, over my career and over time, it's really dawned on me, you know, there's a lot more than the science when it comes to encouraging climate action and sustainability. Obviously, the science, you know, is the bedrock of understanding climate and environmental issues, but that definitely is just one part. Um, And I think effective policymaking and communication are also really necessary to encourage effective changes. So, uh, yeah, I went on to do a master's in sustainable development and environmental economics. And then I worked in the private sector as a climate and environmental policy consultant for a few years. Um, 
And that was really interesting. The team I worked with generally focused on multilateral policy evaluation for the likes of uh, the European Commission and the World Bank. Um, and the company was a large engineering consultancy, so it was really great to be able to learn from a pool of technical experts in other fields. So, you know, economists, infrastructural engineers, hydrologists, um, that kind of thing. Um, I also learned a lot about policy analysis and methods of evaluation, which ended up being very useful um, and almost directly transferable for when I ended up working in aid and development as a monitoring and evaluation consultant in Khartoum, Sudan. Brilliant. And how long were you in Sudan? Uh, I was in Sudan for nearly two years. So from, yeah, the end of 2019 to, yeah, 2020 to 2022. And was there any particular kind of project that you supported on? Yeah. So I originally went there um, to start my PhD research with the University of Glasgow. And then I suppose when I was there, I ended up working um, as a monitoring and evaluation consultant for kind of various UN agencies and INGOs. Um, and for example, one of the projects that myself and my colleague, um, Mohammed Abu Bakr, worked on um, supported the ILO to develop a methodology to assess the impact of an urban wash program, which aimed to reduce water insecurity and enhance employment among communities in Mayo. So a really crucial part of that kind of study was having a thorough baseline assessment done so that specific issues were able to be pinpointed. Um, so, for example, in Mayo, you know, water affordability was the main issues. So that was the main issue. So communities relied really heavily on donkey drawn water carts. Mm -hmm. And they were spending up to 50% of their daily income uh, to buy water that way. Wow. And the cart drivers increased the price of the water in areas that were really hard to reach or, you know, uh, hard to navigate just because of the effort it required to, mm -hmm. to get there. Um, so in this specific case, it became really clear, actually, that by improving road infrastructure and enhancing drainage, that they were actually really important uh, solutions to, to make water more affordable. Um, so, yeah, I suppose... Uh, that was the kind of work that I that I, I was doing when I was in Sudan. Brilliant. And then from Sudan, you're now in Concern Worldwide. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't that quick. Um, no. But <laughs> no, it was actually. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> Just one old flight. Um, so, what can you tell us a bit about what you're doing now at Concern Worldwide? Yes. Uh, so the role of environmental sustainability coordinator, it's definitely a new role to me, um, but it's also a new role for the organisation, and I think. You know, it does reflect how serious concern are about taking steps towards becoming more environmentally sustainable, not just in terms of delivering effective programs related to climate resilience and adaptation, but also when it comes to reducing the environmental impact of our systems and operations. Um, and I suppose making sure that we're engaging with other organisations to drive forward sustainable solutions within uh, the wider humanitarian aid and development sector. So that's kind of the, the key part of, of my role. Um, and I guess, I don't know, maybe the logic behind hiring me, hiring me was having the background in environmental and climate policy and then um, experience in the very challenging context of Khartoum. And I, I do think, you know, um, when we're talking about environmental sustainability and humanitarian aid, it's really important that those challenging contexts are at the forefront of your mind at all times because it's not the same as driving forward sustainable solutions in you know you know standard kind of corporations um, as we we might know them 
it's it's definitely complicated. So yeah, having that uh, perspective is really was really important. Mm. As in, kind of what works in Dublin's office, exactly, is definitely not what's going to work in the UK office or yeah, Ken Kenya's office. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think also just in terms of you know like upholding the principle of climate justice we do have more of a responsibility in offices in the UK and Ireland and the US um, than, you know, our colleagues who are delivering life-saving humanitarian aid in, in the global south. So it's definitely important to make sure that the onus is on um, those offices. Uh, the fact of the matter is um, communities in the global south are experiencing the reality of climate impacts on a day-to-day -day basis already. It's no longer a far-flung um kind of down the road issue for them. Um, so it's really important to, 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 to understand that and to make those considerations when you're talking about sustainable solutions in our sector. Do you see this kind of role becoming more common? in our sector? I think um, definitely. I think um, in our sector in particular, there's it's highly likely that environmental considerations are going to become more and more important for donors. I mean, the fact of the matter is, you know, the duty of humanitarian actors is to save and protect lives. Um, and by minimising the impact of humanitarian aid operations on the environment, you know, humanitarian actors will not only assist communities in need who are reliant on natural resources for their livelihoods and well-being they're also going to contribute towards protecting the planet and protecting the livelihoods and well-being of future generations which is really key um so yeah the the, the benefits of reducing the the impact of humanitarian operations on the environment are wide-ranging and this has definitely been recognized um by um donors who are definitely pushing forward policy um, in our sector. So, for example, you know, DG ECHO, uh, the Directorate for European Civil Protection and Humanitarian Aid Opera Operations, they are definitely what I would consider uh, a leader in terms of pushing for sustainable solutions in humanitarian aid. They've just published a new set of minimum environmental requirements for partners, um, which are being trialed this year during 2022 before coming into force next year. And I think this has been a really important um, shift, uh, you know, to put pressure on organisations from the top down uh, to consider environmental stewardship related to programmes. And obviously, again, it's important to highlight, you know, humanitarian organisations obviously don't have the same the same responsibility as as big corporates when it comes to environmental impact. Um, but you know, the fact of the matter is, we all have a role to play. Um, and and those organisations with the humanitarian mandates should definitely still be um, working towards sustainable solutions. So I do think it's probably going to become um, yeah a more common role um, in our sector. Hopefully, that's what I'd like to see anyway. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Um, do you have? I mean, not just kind of international development charities. Um, obviously, the charity sector is far and wide and large, um, covering range of topics. Is there anything that you would kind of give advice on if they are looking to be more environmentally friendly through yeah, their work or their office or anything? Yeah, I think, you know, in general, there are three pillars to any kind of good environment strategy. 
in any sector. And I think those are related to measuring emissions associated with energy use or fuel use or um, uh, those kind of things. The second would be implementing sustainable solutions. And then the third one would be encouraging behavior change among staff. So when I talk about sustainable solutions in the office, I might be talking about um, the use of LED lights, you know, solar heated water, energy saving glass, making sure that waste is recycled as effectively as possible. Obviously, again, depending on the local context, water saving bathroom devices, you know, hybrid vehicles. Then there are measures related to behavior change. So these, this, this kind of thing would be the development of a travel policy to reduce the CO2 that's associated with unnecessary travel. Um, things like going paper free, having a single use plastic free office, even things like meatless Mondays. I mean, it all counts. Um, and I think putting together a core sustainability team to drive those behavior changes is also a really important first step, um, which I know that you have done in the UK, which is great. <laughs> I'm sure everyone, I mean, there was a point where I was called the monitor monster because I would go around and make people turn off their monitors <laughs> and, they left, and then name and shame them in an email the next day. Excellent. Yeah. yeah <laughs> All yeah. for the environment, obviously. Um, not a power move. <laughs> um, so another one of my questions was, is there any standardization or policy developments that are coming down the pipeline for our sector that we can kind of prepare for or look out for? Yeah, so I think I already mentioned DG Echo's um, minimum environmental requirements, which is a really exciting development because, as I said, that's a donor, you know, who are really kind of pushing forward policy changes from the top down. Um, and, and they're going to be coming into effect next year. So that's a really important development, I think, in our in our sector. Another um, more inter another interesting one is... Um, in terms of um, carbon audits, the ICRC are developing a, uh, well, they're, they're, they're currently piloting a carbon audit tool that they've developed specifically, specifically for measuring um, carbon emissions in humanitarian aid and development. And this is really useful because, you know, this is one of the kind of key ways that you can understand how to feasibly take steps to reduce your emissions as an organization. And the tool itself was developed in response to the kind of shared teething pains felt by organizations in our sector who set about measuring their own carbon footprint and then realized, you know, how messy it can be when there's no start standardized format. So I suppose um, that kind of development, having a tool like the one from the ICRC is definitely a step in the right direction towards comparing and tracking progress across organizations, which I think is, is, is helpful. So, yeah, one, there's a lot of big words in this episode. Um, and <laughs> I know that uh, in my, for me personally, whether you use eco-friendly, environmentally friendly, or carbon offset, um, there's so many words. But one of the ones we're we're kind of talking about is carbon neutrality. Um, what is that exactly? Yeah, no. First of all, you're totally right. Like terms like carbon neutrality, net zero, climate positive. These have all been around for a while. And then I think also it's complicated by the fact that you know recently everyone from you know smaller startups to global corporations have started integrating them kind of into mainstream marketing for commercial purpose purposes or, or whatever else. And I think the diversity of these phrases 
and the lack of clarity around them can really be confusing. Um, and I also think knowing the differences between these phrases is really important when it comes to kind of spotting greenwashing, which is basically, you know, when, when organizations or companies kind of hop on the climate action and sustainability bandwagon for commercial purposes. Um, but according to the targets that are set by the Paris Climate Agreement, we have 29 years remaining to reach global net zero emissions. So while carbon neutral refers to balancing out the total amount of emissions, i.e. by using offsets, net zero carbon means no carbon was emitted from the get-go. So no carbon would need to be um, captured or offset. So when an organization um, describes themselves as moving towards being carbon neutral, it means that um, probably they are going to um, be using uh, carbon offset mechanisms to, to support that uh, journey for themselves. Yeah. So that would be like, we're still going to emit emissions, but we're going to plant a thousand trees. Yeah. As in, well, I'd hope that they would be taking other steps to reducing their emissions, but then maybe the remainder of those emissions would be offset. Um, obviously, there are organisations and corporations who rely heavily on offsets. And there's a lot of very difficult technical and ethical questions associated with, with that, um, which is almost another podcast episode in itself. <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's the kind of, yeah, the difference between those kind of terms, which are definitely intimidating um, when you hear them all being thrown around. So we have already kind of touched on things we could do in the office. What would you say are the three main things that an organisation needs to change to make the biggest impact? Uh, okay, so three things, I think, and keeping it in terms of very general organisations, I think the three, definitely the three main actions would be to um, start measuring uh, your energy and uh, fuel and uh, the carbon emissions associated with um, with scope one, two or three emissions is, is really important first step. Um, secondly, would be to uh, reduce air travel. I think pretty much every organisation would be able to make significant savings by doing this. So having an environmentally conscious travel policy is also something that's going to make a big difference. Um, also, the third one would be investing in specialists and upskilling current staff you know, you'd be surprised at the amount of, uh, you know, relevant kind of topics or, you know, the, the amount of, of relevance that environmental sustainability and climate action has to so many aspects of our life. So by upskilling current staff, you might be, you know, um, you might be gaining a new perspective um, from somebody who has got a lot of experience in, in your organisation. Um, so, yeah, I think that's that would be my three kind of main main things, I'd say. Yeah, definitely. I think what's worked well in my um, office is actually having kind of, even though it came, it came a bit from grassroots kind of um, initiative, mm -hmm. but actually then getting a real kind of decision from the top and saying, no, this is actually what we're going to do. Yeah. But then it puts less pressure on, you know, the person in your team that's like, maybe we should print less or maybe we should use recycled paper. Um, having someone who would be like, yeah, this is now the decided way to be also very helpful okay and um, what are the e three easy things that someone could be doing today 
to reduce impact? So as an individual, I think the, there are three main things and maybe the last one isn't super easy, but I'll get to that. So I think, first of all, reducing air travel as an individual is hugely important. Also getting walking or cycling to work if you drive, um, you know, obviously depending on the context um, is another really key way of reducing your own personal environmental footprint or carbon footprint. Um, secondly, you know, everyone hates to hear it, but it is a fact reducing meat and dairy consumption is one of the key ways that you as an individual can reduce not just your carbon emissions, but your overall environmental impact. There's a whole plethora of academic and scientific research on this that I will not go into, but I think it is generally an accepted, um, an accepted um, kind of fact now that this is definitely something, not just for, you know, the planet. I mean, for health reasons, there's myriad benefits as well, but so that would definitely be my number two. And then number three, I think it's a bit of a wild card and often not the easiest, but I think, you know, communicating with compassion, empathy, and a little bit of enthusiasm within your circle and in your office to get others on board also goes a really long way. I think, you know, we're divided enough in today's society. Climate action and sustainability should not be something, another cause for divergence and separation. It should be something that brings us together. And I had a really, I had the pleasure of listening to the president of Ireland, Michael D. Higgins, talk about this at an event last week. And he said something that really resonated with me. And that was um, the path back to nature should be one of empowerment. So I think keeping that at the forefront of our mind when we kind of communicate with each other on uh, issues related to climate and environmental sustainability is uh is a nice kind of way of framing it so that would be that would be my third one i like that yeah i think a lot of it can feel judgmental when someone exactly. is yeah. approaching you um and it's very, it's kind of hard to not judge <laughs> when someone's like burning a pile of tires in their background <laughs> um, but yeah i think definitely it's yeah you have to kind of watch yourself and how you approach subjects um yeah, and appreciating the context, you know, again, especially in, in our sector, appreciating the context is is hugely important as well. Um, so yeah, that would be that would be kind of my three main ones. So thank you so much, Ellen, for joining us today and talking us through that. Um, I'm definitely going to Google some of the words that you have used. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. Hopefully we'll kind of, I mean, we're doing something at our our charity concern at the moment. So maybe in a year or so we can kind of come back and report on what we found. Yeah, that would be, that would be interesting for sure. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and find it useful. And of course, please let us know your thoughts or if there's anything you'd like us to cover, or you may in fact have your own great story or insights that need to be shared with the world. Get in touch for our website, charitychat.org.uk. It's just left for me to thank our corporate sponsors, our platinum sponsor, Work for Good, who believes everyone should be able to turn the work they do into good. Through their fundraising platform, they offer charities a way to engage and work with small businesses, including founders, owners and sole traders who want to make an impact for their charities through their sales. 
To find out more, please visit workforgood.co.uk. We'd also like to thank Giant Squid Audio Lab for sponsoring our podcast kit, Magda Aksumit for our beautiful website, and Forrester Falls for playing throughout the show and for playing us out now. <laughs>